This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. Joining me now is the Editor-in-Chief from the Post-Millennial, Libby Emmons. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very, very well this morning. And I got you on board because the Post-Millennial, if our readers aren't aware of it, is a publication that I love and I reference all the time because you look at news and events from a full spectrum and a full lens that often is not seen elsewhere in legacy media. So just explain to people from your perspective what the post-millennial is and the sort of things that you cover for the for your readers. Sure. Well, the post-millennial is a breaking news and culture outlet. We were actually founded in Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada, um, I think in 2018. I came on board in 2019, and our original mission, which still is with us, was to look at the situations with the culture wars, to um, look at cancel culture, which was definitely a huge deal in Canada in the United States then with Me Too movement, and also pushback against gender identity, ideology, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so that's really that's really what we're about, and we have stuck with that mission while we have grown. Mm. And um, and you cover stories too. You'll dig into stories, particularly around those culture stories, because often you will only see one face of many of those stories. And I want to touch on some of those now. So um, Russell Brand, I think, is the first obvious one to start with. You've been tracking this since the beginning. Have they? Have they even charged him with anything yet? No, and that is something that I think is really important to recognize. Accusation is not guilt. Accusing someone of something does not mean they are guilty of that. Uh, Being friends with someone who has been accused of something does not mean you are a bad person or guilty of anything at all. And I think that that's very important to note. A lot of specifically men in the United States, the UK, I don't know how it is in New Zealand necessarily, but also in Canada, have lost their careers, their relationships, um, their professional standing, their reputations, their ability to find new employment simply because they have been accused of uh, sexual misdeeds. And in a lot of cases, these sexual misdeeds are um, very ambiguous. They are vague and they do not rise to the level of criminality. If Russell Brand has committed violent acts of rape or any of these kinds of things that are criminal, then he should be charged. If he has not (laughs) done those things, you know, or if there's no probable cause, then he should not be charged and he should essentially be left alone. The issue with the Russell Brand case that I find so compelling and interesting is that the um, women who spoke up, I believe there were four women who spoke up against him. Three of them were anonymous. One was a former girlfriend. And they all said that they would not have spoken up had they not been contacted by a reporter digging into Brand's past. So they very specifically said uh, to that reporter, oh, you know, we were not going to speak up until you contacted us. And now, now we will speak up. And the report also said that, um, 
These women said they were compelled to speak up now because of Russell Brand's newfound success as essentially a culture warrior, someone who is debunking mainstream narratives. So those two things were particularly suspect to me. And as that dragging of Russell Brand continued, we saw the media play an even bigger role in not only trying to destroy Russell Brand, but to destroy anyone associated, any of the companies associated with Russell Brand. So shortly thereafter, you had NBC contacting sponsors of brands on YouTube, um, companies like Burger King or HelloFresh, and asking those companies if they would disavow Russell Brand. These companies were not going to speak up, most likely. They probably were not even aware of it, of the situation, until they were contacted by NBC. Because I know Rumble were asked by a British senior British conservative politician to deplatform him, and mm-hmm. they declined. Go Rumble, mm-hmm. and then so that NBC reported then contacted those uh, advertisers to put pressure on Rumble. Is that how that's how I read it? Or yeah, did they- so it started with contacting brands um, sponsors on YouTube, oh. many of whom said no, you're right, we're not going to continue with Russell Brand. There was one company that was like, is he being accused of something in a criminal situation? Because otherwise we know he has powerful enemies and we're not going to pull our advertising just because NBC told us to. And then, yeah, as you said, the um, a group of MPs contacted a number of companies saying, are you going to disavow Russell Brand streaming companies like TikTok, I believe, and some other platforms? And Rumble now famously declined to deplatform Brand. And what was very interesting is after that, after Rumble's Chris Pavlosky, again, that's a Canadian company, and I, I applaud them for standing on their values. After Rumble was contacted and by the MPs in the UK and said outright that they would not pull brand off their platform. Um, a, a news company called The News Movement, which was founded, I believe, in 2020, launched last year. It was founded by some people who used to be with the Dow Jones and the BBC. They contacted Rumble's advertisers and said, are you going to pull your support from Rumble because Rumble won't pull Russell Brand off the platform? This was a media-coordinated strike against a man who debunks mainstream media narratives. It could not be more clear to me that that's what went on here. It's incredible that they're still pulling this stuff. I mean, surely, from a corporate perspective, have lessons not been learned from the Mulvaney Bud Light debacle? (laughs) In fact, Dylan Mulvaney was just named Woman of the Year by Attitude Magazine in the UK, which is a premier gay magazine um, globally. So no, no one has learned any lessons from uh, from the Dylan Mulvaney debacle, except perhaps Bud Light, who is still tanking because of that. Uh, but what's, what's I think key to note as well is that these companies that have been platforming these ridiculous ideas, like the concept that men can be women just just, just because they say so, just, oh, I'm this other thing now. Oh, okay. Everyone now believe you and bow down to you and give you awards. Um, these ideas have been 
pushing through since the late 80s and into the early 90s, and they have just been allowed to fester. So, for example, at Target, that brand um, has been partnering with an organization called Glisten, G-L-S-E-N, which is a global indoctrinate gender identity indoctrination group that pushes curriculum into schools worldwide, instructing children that they should, they could switch gender and that uh, virginity is a meaningless concept, you know, all of these, all of these other things. Disney has been partnering with Glisten for a long time as well. All of these groups, all of these companies back the Trevor Project, which at the post-millennial, we had a mom um, who went undercover with the Trevor Project in a chat and discovered that they are perfectly help, willing to help you transition, but they uh, will essentially kick you out and tell you they have no resources for you if you are attempting to detransition. It is a, just a topsy-turvy upside world that we now live in. So from a brand, from brand's perspective, I mean, this is still unfolding. I understand the police are investigating, which in itself is creating sugar. And I think for many Brits, considering that they are looking into these sort of hearsay type allegations and yet so many crimes are left uninvestigated in the the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Kevin Spacey went through a similar situation that was protracted over a number of years. He got caught up uh, at that sort of at the tail end of the wave of the Weinstein wave Mm -hmm. and he had his day in court and he was vindicated. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. He was he was really um, smeared here in the U.S. as well, really quite a lot, because the people who came after him were uh, very prominent themselves in the you know theater and film community. So, what is the the mood from people within the cultural element? Because this is becoming so regular now that there are now initially you would have these events a cancellation would happen and there would be no recall sought for the person that was the victim of the cancellation but things have moved on in the last five to seven years and Uh people are more aware of the tactic and brand has been stout in his defense he's not apologized he's not acquiesced he's been very stout in his defense what do you think is the path forward for him Well, I think that if it were not for the emergence over the last few years of more of a parallel economy in social media um, and discourse, Russell Brand would have no no path forward at all. But because we now have Rumble, because, um, you know, Twitter now stupidly called X has opened up and been a, become more of a free speech platform, then there is a way to get information out there that is not being, you know, filtered through this legacy media, corporate media, mainstream media perspective. And that's been really fascinating to see that some of these voices that you would not have seen one year ago, two years ago, certainly not five years ago, are now able to breach that endless sea and get out there and be seen. So I think that Brand's path forward probably means a lot less money for him because there is less money on the parallel economy side. 
um, there's less companies and there's less resources, but they are growing and they are building. And I'm very glad to see that. So I think his best path forward is probably tighten his belt a little bit, stick with Rumble, stick with Twitter and keep going. Mm, super out. He super has an audience, lead. you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he has an audience. Yeah. So he can, if that audience will stick with them, then he he should be all right. You've sort of touched on a touchstone in, in a sense because online censorship, I know you were on a panel feedy recently that discussed this. Online censorship is something that we are aware of down here because our illustrious or not former prime minister, it's a little pet project of hers. And she's sure currently on, yeah, and she's currently on <laughs> fellowship in Harvard. So glad she's not here anymore. But she's, you know, I'm spreading. disappointed she's here. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. She's spreading the love. She's spreading the love. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't send don't send her back, Libby. You can keep her. You can keep her. <laughs> okay. She had an attempt whilst she was in office to greatly restrict free speech in this country. And it was pretty stoutly resisted and pushed back by the founders of this radio station, along with Free Speech Union and and other nonprofit organizations that really worked incredibly hard to get the fangs of that digital harms bill reduced significantly, and and they did so. They've now got a discussion document out with a different government department in a way to sort of like, okay, well, that didn't work, let's try something else. And I see that there is a sameness with this information, and I'm picking it's coming from the work that she's doing around Christchurch Call with some of these leaders to try and stelch and quell speech on these alternative platforms and the newly expanded loosening of X. So what are some of the things that you're seeing over there in terms of an attempt to silence people? Well, we watched the unfolding Jacinda Ardern uh, squashing of free speech with interest and horror. And we reported on that. She was, you guys know this, she reached out to uh, prime ministers and presidents all over the world to try and get them to quell freedom of speech, you know, after the the horrific terror attack that you had there. And it's very easy to look at a, a horrific act like that, something that is so vile, and to say, we need to stop this from ever happening again. And the way to do that is by preventing people who may have these perspectives from speaking. It's very easy to say that. But it's also exactly the wrong thing to do, and it won't actually stop things like that from happening again anyway. So by restricting citizens under the guise of restricting terrorists, you're actually just restricting everybody and you're not preventing terrorists from doing anything at all. So we saw here in the U.S. and certainly Canada has its own issues because Justin Trudeau is I, uh, you know, separated at birth, perhaps from Jacinda Ardern, very similar. In oh, yeah, he is the brother from another mother. Trust me. <laughs> oh, he, he's absolutely a terror himself in terms of restricting Canadians' rights, uh, calling parents and um, truckers who just wanted to have COVID restrictions listed, calling them, you know, hateful and all of these, you know, pick your phobic word. He was using it against them. But yeah, here in the U.S., we certainly saw the Biden administration, which I am no fan of, attempting to and successfully colluding with social media companies and with press to define narratives that were the acceptable narratives 
and to uh, squash anything that went in opposition to that. So if you spoke out on Twitter, if you said things, for example, like, you know, we have this trans assistant secretary to the Department of Health and Human Services. His name is Rachel Levine. He was a pediatrician. He was married. He fathered children before he left his wife and decided to present as female I became, you know, an admirable admiral with the public health service or something, whatever. Anyway, if you say that he's a man on Twitter, or if you did, then your account would be suspended. Jordan Peterson referred to an actress who had gone from female to male by her original name, her given name, and he was suspended on Twitter. So we saw a lot of this, and it was especially prevalent with discussions of COVID, where the idea was that the Biden administration knew everything about COVID and there were no other alternatives. You had to get your government-sponsored vaccine 15,000 times before you were allowed to dine in a restaurant in New York City and all of these ridiculous things. Uh, So we did see that. There was not enough pushback by the American people at the start, for sure. And as a free speech advocate, which I consider myself you know, the First Amendment in the United States that protects freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, the freedom to peaceably assemble, and the freedom to petition your government for a redress of grievances. I will stand on that to my dying day, no matter what. That is huge for me. That is hugely, hugely important, those things. And during COVID, the government pushed back. They quelled freedom of speech. They closed our churches and synagogues. They uh, manipulated the press very successfully. They withdrew our right to peaceably assemble, and they specifically made it very difficult to petition our government for a redress of our many, many grievances. By the time the Supreme Court caught up to the closure of churches, saying that it was an absolute violation of our First Amendment rights, the churches had been opened and the government in New York, because it was many states that limited church access, the government in New York was like, what? It's it's done now anyway. So these are places like Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan left casinos open. She closed churches. Yeah, She was the one that wasn't, she um, left casinos open, but you couldn't go to the garden center to plow the garden. Is that the one? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was her. They Mm. were tying up swing sets. They were arresting moms for bringing their kids to the playground. They were telling us to get these COVID shots. They were telling us to get our food delivered. Um, They were, gyms were closed. So they were basically turning us into these fat babies sitting on our couches, unable to, you know, exist in a real way. There was a, I no longer live in New York City, but I'm, you know, definitely a New Yorker and I, you know, love the city. And there was this absolutely disgusting display on New Year's Eve 2020, 2021, maybe, or was it 2020, whatever, whenever it was during that period of time that is now indistinguishable from any period of time within it, you know, but there was this moment, it was New Year's Eve, And the city, New York City, has this uh, ball drop every year. It's this whole big deal. It's broadcast on television. It's a big celebration for New Year's Eve. It's something the city is well known for. The city said, no, you can't hang out in Times Square in the freezing cold this New Year's Eve. And instead, what they did 
was they had the they had the mayor, they had the full mayor go out into Times Square and dance in the in the empty Times Square with his wife. And me and my son are sitting there. We made brownies at midnight because, you know, what are you going to do when you have a little kid at home and you want to stay up all night and make brownies? I, we weren't going to be in Times Square anyway. But here he was dancing around with his wife like some ridiculous dictator that takes all of the beauty of the city for himself and tells us all to just stay home. I was appalled. And you actually saw mainstream media. You saw CNN. I forget who it was, Anderson Cooper and someone else whose name I forget. But they were out there intoxicated, freaking out about Mayor Bill de Blasio and his wife, Charlene McRae, just dancing it up while the rest of us were stuck home. So I do wish that Americans had been more vocal Mm -hmm. at the outset. But I am glad that they finally got their feet under them and opened their mouths. I get this sense, well, I'd like to think that you wouldn't be fooled again. And we're very, we're a very easy, easy, peaceable people. And what stunned me was how readily we complied to regulations that were. Oh, me too. Openly, I mean, and when they locked us down, it wasn't even legal to do so. So as a New Zealander, you could have, in those first few weeks, you could have actually gone, no. Actually, no, I know you would like us to stay home, but we're not going to. And they couldn't do anything about it. But that was all suppressed. Everyone believed that it was legal until someone actually looked it up and challenged it. And then they had to rush legislation through. And it was it was just dreadful. But I hope lessons have been learned. So and one of the things that I've discovered from a cultural perspective, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. It's interesting what will wake people up in the middle. Those that sort of, I think I mentioned it to you before we got started. The culture wars is a little bit like one of those I3D puzzles, you know, those optic illusion puzzles mm-hmm. that you could stare at and stare at and stare at and say, I don't see anything. And then all of a sudden you relax your eyes and boom, this other three-dimensional world appears. Yes. And the culture wars is a bit like that. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And people are starting to see it. And what's woken them up here is because so much was rushed through during COVID while everybody was distracted and locked down and force-fed a government regime of media, things were slipped into like the education system and Mm -hmm. the corporate system and the public system of these cultural war elements and entrenched. So when you sort of came out, they were there, like it was the the gaslight was like, oh no, those were always there. No, yes. you no, you they were always there, and particularly the gender issues. So in this country, the gender issues have woken a lot of people up. And the Mulvaney incident, to me, I think was one that woke a lot of Middle America up. Yeah, it did. Yeah, because you have this this man parading around calling himself a girl, clearly someone who had a failed entertainment career prior to that. His previous TikToks were, uh, you know, sort of like hanging out with animals, you know, talking to animals. Uh, He had a stint on The Price is Right where, I mean, he's very clearly a very flamboyant gay man. Okay, that doesn't make you a woman. A huge part of the gay rights movement was to say, hey, if you're a very flamboyant gay man, you're not any less of a man than any other man. Now the gay rights movement apparently says that if you are a flamboyant gay man, you are probably wrong. You are probably just a woman. I think it's no surprise that some of the most uh, tolerant nations for gender transition are very 
strictly religious Islamic nations where they cannot tolerate homosexuality, but they're perfectly happy to let you cut your dick off and say that you're a woman. This is absolutely absurd. You know, I mean, to say to a gay man, you're not really a gay man. You're actually just a straight woman. I mean, what an offensive thing to do after the struggle of the gay rights movement, which was wildly successful here in the United States. And it's like all these organizations that were so happy to cash checks on behalf of the oppressed were not ready to give up their not-for-profit status and give up their business model because they had succeeded. So they decided to switch to trans stuff. That's true of the human rights campaign here which had as its raison d'etre to get gay marriage passed. Well, gay marriage was passed and they kept going. And now they want to make sure that kids get uh, growth stunting, sterilizing drugs so that they can look more like the opposite sex when they're grown up. There's all kinds of crazy concepts behind this. There's, you know, and if you look at it closely, you have the pharmaceutical industry, which creates lifelong medical patients for very expensive drugs that they would have to maintain for the rest of their lives, very expensive surgeries that they would have to undergo in order to maintain their their appearance. And it's an appearance thing. Nobody changes sex. That's not actually scientifically possible. Instead, what you do is you alter your appearance to appear as and attempt to be perceived as the opposite sex. That's what this is all about. It's all about spending money to do that, but it doesn't actually change you. And the concept of the you know, transgender child is a lie that is being perpetrated on parents and children who would likely just outgrow it or be gay or be lesbian or dress however they please. When I was coming up, if a little girl had short hair and overalls, that didn't make her any less Mm -hmm. of a girl. It just meant she wanted to wear short hair and overalls. I used to come home, you know, covered in mud after wandering through the woods and the marshes with my cousin. You know, I'd come home with like ticks on my, my parents would like, take them off. You know? <laughs> I was a mess, you know, because I was a little kid, just wanted to muck around in the woods. I wonder now what would happen with something like that. Mm-hmm. Like you're a little, kid, little girl that wants to muck around in the woods. And the next thing you know, they're cutting your breasts off and telling you, you don't ever get to be a mother, which I just think, I just think it's so horrifying. And we see these cases of young women who went through this. Now we'll never be able to nurse children And it's hard enough to nurse children, even if you didn't go through that. I mean, it's like, it doesn't always work out. You know, it's difficult. Mm. The whole bastion, you're a mother, I'm a mother. The whole bastion of motherhood is under attack. Yes, it really is. And you have these men who are like, I'm the mother now because I'm taking estrogen. So I can nurse this baby and give her whatever slop is being secreted from my body. I mean, it's just a horror. I didn't know I wanted to be a mother until... I was, I think, 34, and I thought to myself, you know, and I was married, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if I want to be a mother, but I am not ready to say no to God's love. If there's more love for me in this life, then I'm going to be open to that. And I am like, you know, I am a little bit sappy, that is true, but I could cry literally every day looking at my son, who is 13. You know, I'm just so, I'm so grateful every day that I have the opportunity to be in this person's life, to mother this person, 
to know him, you know, to experience. I mean, when you're a mom, right, you experience the world so differently because you you can see into the future. I always felt like at a certain point I would hit a certain age and there would be more life behind me than there was ahead. And I would just be looking back. And now I can see into the future for generations. Mm. I really do wonder that I look at all of these couples that, I mean, they make a decision not to have family and so many women are just unable to, uh, you know, fertility, particularly once you're over 30, it's, it can be a bit of a a nightmare and a battle and you may not have the right person to have a child with and it's difficult to do it on your own. There's so many barriers. And I do wonder, you know, with there's already a loneliness epidemic, how lonely will it be for this next generation coming through that have no one, as you said, in front of them to look towards yeah. and care for. It does worry me. Mm. It just seems very sad, yeah. I say to my son, like, don't forget, someday give mommy some grandbabies. <laughs> so other things that have sort of transpired, which is seeing things change, particularly out of the COVID crisis, as I see Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did what I thought he should have done all along and Mm -hmm. announced his independence and running as an independent candidate. Hardly surprised. I mean, the Democrats did kind of, you would never know that he was running if you were looking at legacy media. Uh, How has that been received? Well, I think it depends on where you are. The Democrats aren't crazy about him because they worry that he'll take votes away from the um, incredibly rapidly aging Joe Biden. The conservatives aren't crazy about him because they're worried that he will take votes away from Donald Trump, who is, of course, seeking a second term, you know, after not not getting elected the last time. So no one is really super on board. Uh, Also, in (laughs) I know this sounds ridiculous, but in such a media heavy culture, the fact that he has that voice issue doesn't help Mm. him get out there very much. But I think he does have his fans. The issue he runs into with conservatives is that he's very pro-abortion and the conservative movement in the United States is incredibly opposed to abortion. The issue he runs into with Democrats is that he questions everything that they have said over the past 50 years, including who killed his uncle and his father um, and what that was all about. So I don't think he has much of a chance to win. I think all he really has a chance to do is disrupt some campaigns and we'll see what happens there. That being said, as we head into this most bizarre election season that I've ever seen, we have a president who is not clearly fit to run for another term, just quietly. Really, really not fit to run for another term. His vice president is entirely out to lunch. She keeps repeating the same phrases over and over, you know, talking about how she's unburdened by what might have been. She's horrible. Nobody likes her ever. Even when she was running for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020, the most she ever got was 3% of the vote. The only reason she was selected as vice president is because she's a black woman. Well, I was just about to say, isn't she living not proof of the dangers of a diversity hire? Yes. And there are certainly many, many, many more qualified black women to be president than Kamala Harris. I spoke to Trevor Loudon <laughs> the other week, and he said he reckons that they're jonesing for Michelle Obama. Yeah, so this is something that people have said, and maybe they are. I don't necessarily see it. I just don't know. And it's very perplexing now to watch because you also have 
Biden's Department of Justice, the Department of Justice comes under the executive branch, which is the White House. You have his Department of Justice prosecuting his political opposition with two cases uh, at the federal level, both of which, if you dig into those cases, are entirely absurd. One of the cases is prosecuting Trump for having left office with classified documents, which he did as president. There is this thing called the Presidential Records Act, which gives presidents the discretionary ability to determine what is personal and what is presidential and should go to the archives. Okay, so there's some questions. Joe Biden left the Senate with classified documents. He put them in his garage. He left the vice presidency with classified documents. Neither of those offices is permitted to take classified documents anywhere, let alone to leave them strewn about in the garage next to your Corvette. Those are issues, and he had those documents from way before. So whether or not Trump should have taken them or not, it's Joe Biden's Department of Justice is prosecuting Trump for a crime that he himself has committed. That really seems not only hypocritical, but unlawful and somehow authoritarian and totalitarian Mm -hmm. as well. The other case, he's being prosecuted for the essentially the January 6th riot at the Capitol, uh, which began as his as Donald Trump's speech, his last rally as president, his very into the rallies uh, was wrapping up. A lot of people say that that means Donald Trump should not be able to run for president under what's called the 14th Amendment, which prohibits anyone from who has been convicted of insurrection or sedition from running for president. Not only has Trump not been convicted of insurrection or sedition, he's not being charged with those things. So this is a completely, if you will, trumped up charge as well. Plus, he's being prosecuted for two other criminal cases, as well as a civil case in New York City. It doesn't seem reasonable that you should be able to prosecute your political opposition for a whole bunch of charges while you're running against them for president. So it's a very bizarre time in American politics, and it's hard to see which way is going to turn up. The other problem we have is the huge gulf between conservatives and Democrats. I mean, it is a huge rift. It's gotten really yeah. large. I I lived there in the late 80s, early 90s, and I'm, you know, everyone sort of rubbed along together and it was and I was in Ohio, which was fairly evenly split between the two. Now it's right. like this chasm. Oh, it's crazy. When I was a kid, my my stepmom and my dad, my stepmom was a Democrat and my dad was a Republican. And now and then they'd argue about Ronald Reagan at the dinner table, like whatever, not a big deal. Just in, And now we have articles that come out that say, if you're a Democrat, you can't date a Trump supporter. You know, friends of mine who do online dating, they'll see a thing that says no Trump supporters, you know, or like, uh, you know, why you should break up with your boyfriend if he's a conservative. Like all of these things, mm-hmm. you have Hillary Clinton having called everyone deplorables, you know, you have all of these things. And you have also half the country voted for Donald Trump, 75 million People voted for Trump and like another half of them voted for Joe Biden. I don't have my numbers exactly correct. But the leftist side really, really hates the conservative side and calls them all these names. Uh, Hillary Clinton recently came out and I voted for her in 2016. You know, I was a gung ho feminist and whatnot. She came out recently and said that they needed to be formally deprogrammed formally deprogrammed. So then you have everyone saying Hillary Clinton wants to send conservatives to re-education camps, which is not really far off from what she said. 
So I, I, I don't know how we bridge this gap. Mm-hmm. And it's something I look at every day. At the Post Millennial, we run all these stories, we dig into them, you know, I don't know that anyone on the left ever sees the work that we do, or if Mm. it's just totally tuned out from what they see. It's certainly a tactic that they use. It's left, but also what I call the cultural left too, because they use the same cancelling, the same dehumanisation. All of those ploys are used to sort of strengthen their position, which then leads me, and I, I, I mean, I don't want to dive into it too much because it is such a fluid situation, but the conflict currently in Israel, and I have a number of um, people I've interviewed here who are Jewish New Zealanders, and it's, Judaism is a, is a really interesting thing for me because it straddles that cultural fence in the sense that those who are proponents of social justice will very, very happily brandage someone as anti-Semitic and try and protect uh, anyone with Jewish faith. And yet, on the other hand, they'll be extensively pro-Palestine. In the United Kingdom, I definitely know there have been protests on Uh both sides, pro-Israel and pro-Palestine. Have you seen that in in the United States? Is there a fissure point between the conundrum, between the two sides. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. It's really, it's not great. And as you say, it is a long-standing ally, the United States and Israel, um, since Israel was founded in what, like, was it 49? Yeah, 47, 49, something like that. Something like that. The U.S. has stood firmly for the right of the Israel state to exist and for the right of Jews to not be exterminated. That's like a, that's a huge deal, right? Uh, We fought the Nazis and the whole thing. So despite Canada having recently honored a Nazi in parliament, which, wow. Oops. Wow. (laughs) That was nuts. Yeah, but there definitely is a rift because you have much of the Democratic Party, specifically the progressives like uh, some of our more prominent congresswomen, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Cori Bush and some others have been very vocally pro-Palestine over the years, Palestinian, pro-Palestinian over the years. Uh, we don't recognize Palestine as a state, but so we don't, you know, don't tend to say that. But yeah, they've been very pro-Palestinian. And of course, Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. And the people of Gaza elected Hamas to be the government. They say it's the political wing of Hamas and not the terrorist wing of Hamas. But of course, there is a terrorist wing of Hamas. Uh, Just like, you know, with Sinn Féin in Ireland, there was the political wing and then there was the terrorist wing. But I mean, come on, like you're you're talking, you know, you got each other's number on speed dial. Like it's not there. There can't be that big of a gulf. You have seen some difficulty because you've had some of these congresswomen and you know congresspeople trying to walk back their comments about being pro-Palestinian while trying to equivocate the atrocities committed in Gaza and the atrocities committed in Israel. And I think that it's true, this is something that you know people have said for a long time, if Palestinians put down their weapons, there would be peace. If Israelis put down their weapons, they would be massacred. This was an attack on civilians It was attack on children and women and grandmas and people just living their lives. And as an American, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. You know, I have plenty of Jewish people in my family and among my friends. We do have a close relationship with Israel. There's an awful lot of Israeli Americans. There's an awful lot of Israelis who come spend time in the U.S. And so 
It has been a very difficult conflict to cover because I hadn't really realized until last night when I fell asleep rather early, uh, I was like, I am exhausted from this, from looking at this, from having your, your international friends butchered. It feels very similar to if there was an attack on, on the UK, which of course the US has a very close relationship with the UK as we should, you know, that they founded us essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, where we get our uh, legal system in a lot of ways. Yeah, but there has been a rift. You have this movement called BLM, Black Lives Matter, which has been pro-Palestinian over the years, which has gained support from most well-known American corporations, from government leaders, from activists and all of this stuff. And they have been very pro-Palestinian. They were some of the BLM offshoots that were saying basically, yay, Hamas. And you had the main faction of BLM saying, whoa, hold on. We didn't say yay, Hamas. But if you dig back into the founder's history, Patrice Cullors, for one, in 2015, was calling for freedom for Palestinians and all very pro-Palestinian. You also see some real issues on our college campuses. Harvard, UPenn, uh, George Mason I saw today, and a lot of universities across the country, which have been infiltrated by Marxists since the, you know, 70s and 80s, who have been pushing this anti-Israel sentiment. So you have these kids walking around thinking that they're actually the opposite sex, taking a bunch of weird drugs and saying that Israel should be eradicated. And they use the slogan from the, what is it, from the river to the sea? And maybe they don't realize that what they're calling for or what they're supporting is the idea of mass, massive genocide. Yeah, and you brought that up. So one of the yeah. things I've always had an issue with with the transgender movement is their concept of transgenocide. And it gets bandied around all the time mm-hmm. as, as to shut down a conversation that you can't say anything against them because you are participating in the transgenocide. What's going on in Israel right now with genocide people? Entire families, festivals, hundreds of people slaughtered. Mm -hmm. That's a genocide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're worried about whether or not someone is going to take away their right to use a bathroom. Yes. And there is no transgenocide. The numbers that they bandy about as to the crimes against trans people were sourced from male to female sex workers in Brazil. That's where they get the numbers. Male prostitutes who dress like women in Brazil were getting killed, and suddenly we have a transgenocide in the United States? I don't think so. Also, if you start digging into the murders of trans people here in the United States, what you find are not biased crimes against trans people. What you find is domestic violence, which, I mean, let's face it, takes the lives of many more women globally and in the United States and in Canada and in Mexico and in Brazil than, you know, trans people. You find domestic violence, you find drug crimes, you find uh, crimes that are often associated with poverty. That's what you find. That's the kind of crime against trans people. That's the kind of murder that we're talking about. Is it tragic? Of course, it's tragic. But it's not bias crimes against trans people. It's not these hate crimes. They are touted as hate crimes in the aggregate, even though if you look at them, they are not they are not that. Well, Libby, this has been absolutely fascinating. So about for our listeners, 
Where do they find more information? They're thinking, oh gosh, this is a new source I really want to check out. How do they find uh, the post-millennial and whereabouts do you guys hang out from an interactive perspective? Well, you can find me at Libby Emmons on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at Libby.Emmons, but mostly it's just pictures of me traveling around places. You can also find the post-millennial at tpostmillennial on Twitter. And our website is thepostmillennial.com. We're always very into having new members and subscribers. And you could go to thepostmillennial.com slash subscribe to sign up there. And we're hoping to have more content for members only coming soon. But yeah, we would love to have more readers in New Zealand. Oh, no, fantastic. It would be great to get you back too as things unfold in this ever-changing world in which we live. Thank this you so great. much, Marie. Oh, no, it has just been so great to have you. And don't disappear here on Counterculture. More great content yet to come, including my old mate, Marty. We're going to be doing our rundown post-election, so don't disappear for that. That is not to be missed here on RCR. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10am on Reality Check Radio. 